This month on the January 2018 edition of Security Management Highlights. Each department conducts its own intelligence, research, and analysis on bioterrorism, making it less feasible to share information and cut costs. U.S. government agencies struggle to share information on biothreats. National Security Editor Lily Chapa explains. This one really caught my eye because it found that 44% of those executives that were surveyed say they do not have an overall information security strategy. A new study shows that many companies at risk of cyber attacks are unprepared to deal with them. Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates tells us more. Plus, about 30% opt in one means or another to either attack or confront the aggressor with the gun. A new study reveals some of the flaws in current active shooter training programs in U.S. schools. Michael Dorn, CEO of Safe Havens International, stops by to tell us about this study's findings and share his firm strategy for putting training to the test. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Diseases like Ebola, MRSA, and the Zika virus take a toll on public health and can pose a threat to U.S. national security. But a new report finds that government efforts on this front are lacking. National Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to tell us more about it. Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Lily, we hear about diseases like the avian flu, Ebola. These are biothreats that the United States is trying to combat, but their methods haven't been quite so effective. That's all addressed in a new Government Accountability Office report that you write about. Share with us some of the findings that stood out to you. Sure. So GAO has tracked federal biodefense efforts for years, and unfortunately, they've been making a lot of the same recommendations because things aren't really changing. The chief concern in their most recent report is the number of agencies involved in biodefense and the lack of an overarching strategy. It detailed how the five key biodefense agencies, which are DHS, DOD, USDA, HHS and the EPA develop and share biological threat awareness. Each department conducts its own intelligence, research, and analysis on bioterrorism, making it less feasible to share information and cut costs. GAO also had trouble quantifying exactly what information is shared and how, making it more challenging to understand the overall biodefense enterprise and how it works. And on that note, you spoke with Christopher Curry from GAO, who is the lead author of that report. What did he tell you about this lack of information sharing across agencies when it comes to biodefense? Curry told me that a lot of the information sharing can be done informally, so it's pretty difficult to quantify exactly what role each agency plays or how big of a priority biodefense is for them. Appropriations, congressional oversight, and stakeholders vary widely from agency to agency as well. The 2014 Ebola outbreak illustrates this lack of cohesion. After a man died and two nurses were infected with Ebola at a Dallas hospital, government jumped into action, scrambling to coordinate response efforts, conduct procedural reviews, and deploy rapid response teams. But Curry pointed out things returned to the status quo after the panic died down, leaving the nation no more prepared for biothreats than it was before the outbreak. Yes, I remember that Ebola outbreak, and it was, you know, quite scary when it came to the United States. 
And there was another report in 2015 that came out and addressed this issue, a blue ribbon study panel on biodefense. What came out of that study and has there been any progress since? Well, GAO and Curry often quote this report and the panel is pretty interesting because it's made up of former political officials and agency leaders all passionate about creating a national biodefense strategy. They released that 2015 report that among other things calls for the current vice president to lead federal biodefense efforts. Without an appointed leader, all other recommendations will result in more uncoordinated efforts. Each year, they release an update on progress, which has been pretty limited, of 46 items that the government could have completed in the year following the panel's report. Only two were fully carried out. Moving forward, as biothreats are only going to continue to spread, what did Curry say about the outlook on biodefense in the United States? Well, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act requires those five key agencies I mentioned earlier to come up with a national biodefense strategy, which is expected to implement at least some of the recommendations from the GAO and the Blue Ribbon Panel. The bad news is that the strategy was supposed to be released last September, but has been pushed out and is now expected sometime in the next few months. Questions have also been raised about the administration's dedication to biodefense, as several biodefense programs are the subjects of proposed budget cuts. So until we really know what exactly the national strategy looks like, it's hard to say whether it will help unify the nation's approach to biodefense. Definitely. We'll just keep us updated, like always, on this topic. Thank you so much, Lily. Thanks, Holly. What do Equifax, Arby's, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Gmail all have in common? All these companies, along with countless others, suffered data breaches in 2017. And as cybersecurity editor Megan Gates explains, the trend is likely to continue based on the information in a new study. Megan, thanks for stopping by the podcast. Thanks for having me. You write about a new survey from PricewaterhouseCoopers that reveals some surprising and some not so surprising facts about the state of global cybersecurity. Tell us a little bit more about the study and what stood out to you when you read it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Holly, because there is definitely some new information and some not new information that we have seen before, giving us a little bit of a deja vu going through this report. So PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC for short, they do an annual survey about the global state of information security every year, roughly. And in 2018, they surveyed 9,500 executives in 122 countries that represented more than 75 different industries. And there were three parts to the survey this year. First was on why businesses are vulnerable to cyber disruptions and how leaders can help organizations build resilience. And this is the part of the report that I really focused on. And then there were two additional parts, one on privacy and trust, and the other was the future of cybersecurity. And so obviously in our jobs, we read lots of reports, um, lots of new surveys and information, but this one really caught my eye because it found that 44% of those executives that were surveyed say they do not have an overall information security strategy. And then 48% do not have an employee security awareness training program. And 54% said they do not have an incident response process to respond to a cyber incident. Those were some very concerning statistics because that means that roughly half of all organizations are not addressing these issues. 
And yes, another kind of daunting finding that jumped out at me was the fact that less than half, just 44% of survey respondents, said that their corporate boards actively participate in their company's overall security strategy. So Megan, why is it a potential problem if boards aren't involved? Yeah, well, as you know, we've seen with almost all issues that organizations face is that they kind of need a top-down approach. The board and the CEO really need to identify that this is a major concern for the organization as a whole and then put forward the resources to address that concern. And I spoke to Ryan LaSalle. He's a security growth and strategy lead at Accenture. And he said that the CEO and the board really have to drive the philosophy of cyber resilience from the top down for it to go anywhere. He had a really good quote. He said, the only way security becomes more effective after all the innovation and the investments gone into it is if the business is accountable for it and it's across the business. So it has to be across the business, seen as a priority, as a part of their overall mission, and then people have to be accountable for addressing cyber risk, taking these steps and implementing procedures to deal with that risk. Definitely. You really do want the endorsement of the leadership, like you said. So some other interesting findings from the PwC study that stood out to you and you wrote about included that very few respondents plan to address risks posed by connected Internet of Things or IoT devices. So what did the study have to say about that? Yeah, I thought that was very interesting considering the amount of information that seems to come out every week, every day about the Internet of Things and sort of the dangers that they pose, you know, and the fact that the survey found that many organizations really are not considering what kind of risk the Internet of Things poses to their organization, their corporate security. And this was kind of IoT was specifically highlighted, but it kind of goes across the board for all new kinds of cyber risks that most organizations are not managing them as proactively as they could be. PwC and the survey found that less than half of respondents said that they're conducting key processes for identifying cyber risks in their own systems, like they're not doing penetration tests, threat assessments, active monitoring of information security, and intelligence and vulnerability assessments. That most of these organizations are still really looking at cybersecurity in a reactive manner. We'll wait and see, and then when the thing happens, we'll handle whatever the thing was. Instead of looking on the front end and being like, oh, we have these kinds of devices or this kind of setup in our network, what should we be doing to strengthen it before an attack happens? So we've obviously been covering some of the more negative things that the survey found, but on a positive note, what are some of the recommendations and helpful steps organizations can take to ensure their cybersecurity systems are resilient and to combat some of these problems? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, while I was putting together this piece, this event in D.C. was going on called Cyber Talks, sponsored by CyberScoop. So it was kind of like a TED Talks version of corporate cybersecurity from all of these different people who gathered in D.C. to talk about cybersecurity and how their organizations are handling cybersecurity. So it was a great chance to see what people are really doing. And one discussion that I listened to was by Christopher Valentino. He's the director of Joint Cyberspace Programs and Technical Fellow at Northrop Grumman. And he talked about his company, how they've made a fundamental shift to being more proactive in addressing cyber threats. And one of their big focuses is training employees through awareness campaigns, even conducting spear phishing tests regularly on their employees to see how they're reacting to them. And Valentino, he has a, you know, a cyber background, a very technical person, and he said in the first round of spear phishing tests, he failed the test. So just because you have a background in this area does not mean that you are immune. And another recommendation um, that PricewaterhouseCoopers gave in the survey was for organizations to take advantage 
of resources that are out there designed to help them. One that they highlighted was looking at the National Association of Corporate Directors 2017 Cyber Risk Oversight Handbook and also studying emerging guidelines from the Information Sharing and Analysis Organization Standards Body and just reading new research that's put out there regularly. And the final thing that PricewaterhouseCoopers recommended was stress testing interdependencies for four different organizations and really taking the philosophy as a company that's championed by Dan Geer. He's the CISO at InQtel, asking yourself, can I withstand the failure of others on whom I depend? And if you can't, then looking at how can I better position myself so that I'm able to. That's great advice for all of us when it comes to, you know, the responsibility we have as computer users in our organizations to help be the front lines. Thank you so much for stopping by and talking about this report, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Options-based active shooter training programs are popular in schools, but a study by nonprofit Safe Havens International found that faculty and staff who had received these popular training programs were more likely to take actions that led to harmful outcomes. However, as Michael Dorn, CEO of Safe Havens International, explains, this can be combated by using audio and video-based training scenarios to test school safety and security plans. He started out our interview by sharing one such audio scenario. You're outside of the school and there are a number of students in the area. You're located about 25 yards from the nearest entry door to the school and you have a key or access control fob that will unlock the door. You notice a man who appears to be intoxicated approaching the students from a distance of about 75 yards. He is about three quarters of a football field away. You see that he has a handgun in one hand and he appears to be angry. You realize that no one else appears to have noticed the man and there are no other staff present. What would you do? So Mike, tell me what the reaction is when you play this audio scenario for school faculty and administrators. Well, when we do one-on-one evaluations where we run a person through a variety of scenarios and time them, it depends on the kind of training they've had. And astoundingly, 30% of people who've been through any of the options-based active shooter training programs or who have seen the video Run, Hide, Fight, about 30% opt in one means or another to either attack or confront the aggressor with the gun. They do things like tell the children to lay down and say they would go attack the person, or they say I would give my key to the students and send them in, and then they would go and try to persuade him to give them the gun. We've never had anyone out of several thousand people who's not been through that type of training react by approaching the the individual. And that's one of the reasons we think scenarios are so important. We see a variety of these very startling reactions to people who've been what we feel is accidentally given operant conditioning to see anybody with a gun as an active shooter. And so it depends on the kind of training they've had. Untrained teachers typically handle it very well. They take the kids inside, put them in lockdown, and notify the office because one of the other things we see is the people who've had options-based active shooter training almost never notify anybody. They don't notify the school, leaving the entire building vulnerable if another teacher, for example, was to bring a group of kids out. And so the police aren't notified, and the protective actions for the school are are typically not enacted if they've had that type of training. And I know that sounds counter to people, you know, because that's not what's taught per se in the active shooter training programs, but that's the reality of the way a significant percentage, again, about one-third of people respond. So when you're in a school setting, how do you use scenarios like these to test the training that a school has already undergone? Well, what we, uh, when we perform assessments for schools and school districts, our analysts, pretty elaborate process, we use audio scenarios like these and also 
a number of video scenarios that our AV unit has filmed. We've got about 200 scenarios in all. And each school, we typically have two employees, one at a time in a private setting. We show a three-minute control video to explain to them what we need of them and, and what we want them to do. And we give them 30 seconds per scenario to verbalize what they would do. And we typically run six scenarios with each test subject, and we score their responses. And because we focus on that first critical 30 seconds of an event, and that lets us determine, for example, what the fail rate for lockdown will be. We, we see certain types of lockdown protocols that have maybe a 95% fail rate, particularly the lockout, lockdown approach fails very badly with scenario testing. And so that lets us see what works and what doesn't work and helps us better guide our clients to find and, and correct any types of issues they may have. We call it fidelity testing. It's a very powerful tool for those listeners who are consultants or if you're a security director, safety director, that type of responsibility. We would really urge you to consider developing and using audio scenarios and testing to see how people will really react. You can test your prevention strategies as well as your emergency preparedness concepts and provide good documentation, good data. It's been one of the most powerful tools we've used. And we've assessed now 6,000 K-12 schools in 24 countries. And so we've been doing this in one form or another for about a decade. And the results have been just astounding to us and to our clients. It's been very helpful to people to affect positive change. So in summary, Mike, how can schools use these audio and video-based training scenarios to better their programs? You know, in my decades of work in this field, I've just never seen anything as powerful as far as a tool to affect positive change with our clients, the schools that we work with. These types of techniques can work, I think, in any setting, you know, whether you work with schools or some other type of venues or maybe multiple venues. If you're not doing it, I'd really suggest you use scenarios. The video scenarios that we produce, they're, even with our own video capability, they're about $4,000 a piece. They're quite expensive, let alone the tools that we use with them. But this audio scenarios, if you have a computer, you can make your own. They're, they're very easy to make. You can tailor them to fit specific types of settings and institutions, and I, I just think whether you're a practitioner or more in the consulting arena, I think you can help the people that you, you know, are trying to help and be a lot more effective, and I think it's just more productive. So if you've not been using scenarios to teach and to evaluate, I'd really suggest it because to us, fidelity testing is everything. If we don't test, we really often don't know how successful our prevention efforts will be, and we really don't have as good of a snapshot of how people will perform under the effects of life and death stress, high-stakes events, as we can tell with scenarios. And if it doesn't test well in scenarios, it's not going to test well in real life. It's going to typically get much worse when we put people under stress or in the prevention arena when they're dealing with so many different things. And sometimes prevention may not be the first thing on an employee's mind if that's not what they do you know, as, as a job role. So if you're not fidelity testing, I'd strongly suggest you consider making sure to the reasonable extent that you can that what you have in theory, your policies, procedures, training, and drills really match what people are most likely to do if, if there's a possibility of somebody being harmed or if a crisis occurs. And we have a variety of scenarios that are actually setting neutral. They're not specific to schools. They're available free on our website. If you go to the Safe Havens International website, that's safehavensinternational.org, there's a red book cover on the, on the homepage. It's always there. Just click on the red book cover, go to Chapter 8 Resources. That's Chapter 8 Resources, and you'll see a series of scenarios that you can download not only to computer to teach, but you can download them to a portable phone and use them as we do when you, you know, just walk up to someone and pull them aside and run a scenario. So those are a free resource. It can also give you a guide if you want to develop your own scenarios. It'll give you a sampling, a little broader sampling than we had today.
Thank you so much for stopping by and sharing this with us, Mike. My pleasure. That does it for this month's podcast. For an extended version of my conversation with Mike Dorn and more audio-based scenarios, check out the bonus episode later this month. Until next time, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and Happy New Year. Bye-bye.